Why don't you take your Bibles and stand with me as we stand? We're standing in honor of the God who speaks through us to us through His Word. When we hear the Bible read, it's God speaking to us with authority, inerrancy, clarity, and sufficiency for everything that we might possibly need. If you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, if you need a pew Bible, it's on page 2. We're going to read all of Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall not eat, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. 
For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. And Adam called his wife name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to fill the ground, to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed a cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword, which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Father, we are hearing you speak as we continue our worship of you and of your son. We hear you speak through your word and by your spirit through our pastor. We pray, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts to be doers of the word and not hearers only. As we reflect on what we have heard, we know that you take sin seriously, so seriously that you have promised and did fulfill the bringing of that seed to bring redemption, victory over sin, death, and darkness like we just sang about. The stone was rolled away and death and sin was robbed of its power. Those who place our faith in you are set free, free, Lord, to be your sons and daughters, your servants, your soldiers, in proclaiming the goodness and glories of who you are. Lord, may we be reminded today, as we hear your word preached, that there are serious consequences to sin. And though, as your children, who have accepted you by faith, through grace alone, there are still consequences for our sin, Lord. And may we look, and may your spirit probe, and may we take seriously that which you do, because you are a holy God. We are so thankful that you are equally compassionate and forgiving. May we understand how this plays out in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. A sign on a convent read these words. Absolutely no trespassing. Violators will be prosecuted to the full extent of the law. Signed, the Sisters of Mercy. That sign reflects a problem many people have with God in our culture today. Namely, confusion about the relationship between the grace of God and the wrath of God. Perhaps you yourself identify with people who say that God is so gracious that he, he simply overlooks our sin. Or maybe you identify more with people who emphasize God's wrath against sin. The problem is neither view reflects the full biblical picture of who our God is. 
The first view stresses God's love and grace toward people, but it loses the holiness of God. Whereas the second view emphasizes God's holiness and wrath toward sin, but loses his grace. The biblical picture is that God is is both loving and holy. He is both gracious and righteous. He is both merciful and just. And this is exactly what we see here in Genesis chapter 3. Last Sunday, as we continue in our series, as most of you know, if you're here for the first time, we're in a series in the book of Genesis, specifically going through the first 11 chapters through Genesis. And we're making our way through that. We have concluded uh, chapters 1 and 2, and we're in the midst of Genesis chapter 3 here. And last Sunday, we looked at the first half of Genesis 3, which continues the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, as as you know, were made in the very image of God to enjoy the blessings of life with God within the boundaries that were set by God. And so God generously, generously supplied them with everything they needed to be happy, to be healthy, and to be holy in the Garden of Eden. At first, Adam and Eve gladly submitted to God. They gladly obeyed the rule of God, lived under his rule, and gladly did so. But then they doubted the very goodness of God. And then rebelled against the authority of God when they asserted their own authority themselves, to be their own God. It was an insurrection. It was a revolt. It was a declaration of independence from God himself. And Adam and Eve's eyes all of a sudden were open, but it wasn't a good thing. At that moment, our first parents were plunged into a state of death and disruption and even denial. And as a result, all of humanity throughout all of history has been impacted by this tragedy of sin. What, what we call, what theologians call the, the fall. The fall of Adam and Eve into sin. And we read all about it here in Genesis 3. Now the question becomes, how does a holy God, how does a righteous God, how does a just God respond to this then? He's the creator, as we have seen in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. So as the creator, how should God respond? How does he respond? God's response, what we see here in Genesis 3, his response to Adam and Eve's sin shows us the seriousness of sin. Notice this in your notes. You're welcome to pull that insert out in your bulletin and take notes if you want. You're welcome just to follow along on the screen behind me. But kind of the big idea, what we're going to look at here this morning, is rebellion against God demands God's judgment. And God's judgment here, we could define it this way. It's his just wrath towards sin. That's what we're seeing play out here in Genesis 3. His just wrath toward Adam and Eve's sin. And that's why God pronounces these judgments, these curses, if you will. But God's grace also, and this is so beautiful, also provides salvation from sin's ultimate curse. And as we will see, the ultimate curse is eternal death, eternal separation from God. And so God's response to Adam and Eve's sin shows us just how serious sin is, maybe not in our eyes, but in the eyes of our Creator, a holy God. In an act, though, of amazing grace, in fact, astonishing grace, we see a God who does not wipe out rebels like Adam and Eve. 
Rather, God graciously seeks them out in order to reconcile them back to a relationship with him. That is amazing. But we also see a God in the same chapter who does not ignore sin. A God who does not say, oh, Adam and Eve, it's no big deal. Don't worry about it. We'll just kind of overlook that. Eve, I know you were deceived by the serpent. Adam, I know you just, well, you weren't man enough, man enough to step up, so we'll just we'll bypass that too. No. Rather, God dealt with their sin as a very serious matter. God imposed the judgment their sin required, but God also at the same time intervened with grace, his grace, so that Adam and Eve could be saved from sin's ultimate curse. And perhaps no other verse captures the seriousness of sin more than Romans 6.23 when the Apostle Paul writes these words here, for the wages of sin is what? Death. But the gift of God, the grace of God is what? Eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so in a culture in which we live, a culture in which sin is oftentimes mocked and grace is cheap, we desperately need to see a truth here. We need to see that sin is serious in the eyes of God. And that's what Genesis 3 shows us. And so let's unpack that. Let's dive into it. Let's unpack it here for a few minutes here. I want you to see this. First of all, number one, we see the seriousness of sin in the judgment God pronounces. In the judgment that God pronounces. Again, because of the holiness of God, he will not, in fact, he cannot ignore sin. He does not turn, a blank, uh, uh, turn an eye away from it. He can't. His holiness will not allow him to do so. God's holiness demands that sin is dealt with in a manner that satisfies his holy wrath. Now, we've already seen God's judgment on the serpent and on Satan for deceiving Eve in verses 14 and 15. We looked at that last Sunday. God cursed the serpent to crawl on its belly and eat dust. And then God conquered Satan. It was a promise to do so, but because God said it, it was a done deal. He conquered Satan through the seed of the woman. And so even in judgment here, there is grace. Isn't that beautiful? In judgment and grace. And there's grace in this promise of a redeemer who would conquer Satan on the cross. And so after speaking to the serpent, God now turns his attention to Adam and Eve. Now again, it's important to note that God curses the serpent, but he does not curse Adam and Eve. Yes, God pronounces judgment on them, for there are still consequences for their sin, but he does not curse them. In fact, we will see at the end of Genesis 3 that there is still, listen to this, blessing for them in the grace of God. Oh, our God is so awesome. And so what then does God say to Adam and Eve? Well, in short, all the blessings from God that we saw in the first two chapters are now laced with pain as a part of the consequences of their sin. Understand, the judgments here that are pronounced on Adam and Eve affected not just them. It affects all of humanity. We are affected by that. Every person in history after them. All of sin is like that. We never, never, never sin in isolation. 
and yet we think we do. No, you don't. We, we may sin in a physical isolation, but here's the deal, the consequences have ripple effects. The impact of our choices to sin always affect others. And we are feeling the effects of Adam and Eve's sin even today. So God's judgment is now pronounced to Eve specifically, to all women in general, but it's really to all humanity. Notice this. Let's look at it. God's judgment. First of all, women will endure pain and sorrow in childbirth. God pronounces judgment on Eve, and this is rather interesting, in her two primary roles as a mother and a wife. Biblically speaking, these are the two roles where a woman experiences her highest fulfillment in life, but now these roles will be filled, get this, with both joy and pain mixed together. Notice what God tells Eve. You see it right here in verse 16. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Now, this pain in childbirth, it refers to the whole process from conception to birth. In fact, some commentators even think it goes beyond birth and to the aspect of even rearing children. And we all understand that rearing children is both a joy and a heartache, right? Been there, done that. I'm still there doing that. We, we get that, okay? It will be plagued, God says, by emotional sorrow. It will be plagued even by physical pain in childbirth. We understand this. In fact, one commentator paraphrased the verse this way. He says, I will greatly increase the anguish you women will experience in the birth process from anxiety surrounding conception to the strenuous work of actually giving birth. In the same commentator, he goes on. He also writes, this includes anxiety about whether she will be able to even conceive a child, anxiety that comes with all the physical discomfort of the pregnancy, anxiety concerning the health of the child in the womb, and anxiety about whether she and the baby will survive the birth process. We understand this because we see this every day in our lives, in our world today. You have all been there, done that. Some of you are getting ready to be there and do that. Women will endure pain and sorrow in childbirth. That's part of the judgment of God onto Eve and therefore all women in general. Second of all, women will experience unhealthy desire and disharmony in marriage. God tells Eve in the rest of verse 16, look at this, look what God says, these are his words. He says to Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, this is not a description of the way things should be, but a tragic description of the way they are as a result of God's judgment on us. What was God's greatest blessing in the garden? Which was, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 2, Eve is, Adam's alone. What does he, Adam, God do for Adam? He, he blesses him. He gives him a wife. And he gives them marriage. And so what was God's greatest blessing, his greatest gift in the garden, man and woman, in this beautiful one flesh relationship is now marked if you will, marked, it's, it's tainted, it's twisted by an unhealthy desire and domination, which can only be overcome by the power of Jesus Christ in the gospel, by the way. God says that this unhealthy desire will now be a, a source of conflict 
and discomfort or disharmony in one's marriage. This unhealthy desire is like the desire of sin to dominate, just as sin desired to dominate Cain, which we will look at next Sunday in Genesis chapter 4. It's the same word used in Genesis 4 verse 7 where God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. And so the woman, God says, would now desire something. What is that unhealthy desire? In this context, it is the desire to actually control her husband. But she will be met with this active or passive resistance in her husband because why god has ordained we already saw this in the creation mandate in the roles that god has given to adam and eve in genesis chapter 2 god has ordained that husbands should in their role of leadership lead in the home but the wife will try to usurp that nevertheless strife will persist in marriage relationship because god adds and he, speaking about the husband now, he shall rule over you, wives. And this word rule, in the Hebrew, it has overtones here of tyranny. In other words, let me break it down this way. The wife, because of the consequences of sin here, will try to usurp the husband's God-given authority and to subtly control her husband while the husband will try to dominate the wife with his authority. In other words, each husband and wife strives for control in the marriage relationship. And how does that work? Not too good. Neither lives in the best interest of the other person, as Paul now commands us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 4, and then he goes on to talk about, you need to have the mind of Christ in you. As one woman explains in an article, she writes this. These words here, this judgment of God, she says, these words mark the beginning of the battle of the sexes. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily. He must fight for his headship. Sin has corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving headship of the husband. And so the rule of love founded in paradise is now replaced by struggle, tyranny, and domination within the marriage relationship. In other words, it's all messed up as a result of the fall. The roles now of husband and wives are now twisted, perverted. No wonder marriage is, yes, still a very beautiful gift from God for the glory of God, but oh so painful because of sin. This is why husbands and wives who, who do what's natural to them We'll have a disastrous marriage. Because when we do what's natural to us in our flesh, what's the result? We're sinners by nature, right? We're born sinners. We choose to sin. If we do what's simply natural to us in our marriages, in fact, in our relationships, disaster rules. It becomes the aspect of disastrous marriage. Because we are two sinners whose agenda is to please self. You say, well... Man, that's pretty doom and gloom. Is there any hope? Is there any hope in my marriage? Yes, absolutely. But the answer, get this, is not to try harder. The answer is not to learn some new marriage tips. 
The answer is to turn to Jesus Christ, who alone can reverse the curse of sin in our lives and our marriages. Which is why you go to the New Testament now, and the Apostle Paul says that to recover what Satan twisted as a result of the sin, the consequences, the judgments here on Eve, to recover that, to redeem that beauty of the one flesh marriage relationship that God still designed and still expects for all marriages, for all times, we must, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21, now submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then in that same chapter of Ephesians 5, he goes on and he addresses the wives. And he says in verses 22 and 23, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. And then you drop down to verse 25 in the same chapter. And Paul now deals with the husbands there. And he says, husbands, love your wives. In other words, don't dominate over them. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you see, the husband is to give sacrificially for the wife, and the wife is to reciprocate that in her submission to his leadership. And this only happens through the grace of God, through the gospel of Jesus Christ, because we don't have this within ourselves to do. That is God's judgment on Eve and all women in general. Now let's look at Adam. God's judgment pronounced to Adam. Notice that men will endure toil and frustration at work. At this point, God stops to tell Adam the reason for his judgment. Now, that's rather interesting because God does not do that to Eve. Now, reading between the lines here, I find that rather interesting in the sense that, whoa, because it's us men, you know, we're kind of dumb, hard-headed, and God's reminding us, here's why the judgment's coming, okay? Just so there's no confusion about this, guys. There's clarity here. I'm reminding you, here's why I'm going to pass this judgment down. So notice what he says. God says in verse 17, he says, because, because you have heeded the voice of your wife. In fact, that phrase because is also used for the serpent too, by the way. Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it, cursed is the ground for your sake. God cursed the ground because Adam listened to his wife when he should have stepped up and intervened. Instead of leading and protecting his wife, what does Adam do? He gave up his leadership role and he disobeyed God along with Eve. It's a total reversal now of the marriage roles. Adam sinned by what? failing to lead his wife, and both of them suffer the consequences for it. Specifically, God's judgment on Adam falls in the area of his work. God says in the rest of verse 17, notice it, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles that shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field, and the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now, in these three verses, man's original relationship to the ground is now reversed. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, what was man's relationship to creation, to the ground? He was to have dominion over it. He was to rule over it. 
but it's now reversed as a consequence of their sin. Instead of it submitting to Adam and men in general and to humanity in general, it will now cause him pain and frustration in his work. And notice that God's judgment is irrevocable. There's no going back on it. God says it is for all the days of your life. Now, ironically, the very ground that had been such a source of joy when Adam and key Eve cared for the garden, it now becomes the source of his ongoing pain and frustration in life. In, in somewhat of a twist of irony, the earth now becomes the enemy, his enemy. Now, please note, a little sidebar here, that work itself was not cursed. We've already touched on that aspect again back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We saw this. Work was a gift of God before the fall of Adam and Eve. God's curse was upon the ground. And now painful toil will assault every man who attempts to work in this world. And so God's gift of work is still good. It is still good, but it is covered, yes, with thorns and thistles, if you will. And Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that Adam's sin even affected the rest of creation. I mean, what is creation doing right now? According to verse 22 in Romans 8, creation, it groans with birth pains. The same terminology used for Eve in painful labor in childbirth. It groans with these birth pains for the dawning of a new day when Christ returns and all things are made new again. Do you see what's happening here as a result of sin? Judgment falls on the man's and woman's respective areas of life. As one commentator put it this way, the woman's punishment struck at the deepest root of her being as wife and mother. The man strikes at the innermost nerve of his life, his work, his activity, and provision for sustenance. In fact, what's really interesting here is, is, is that this word pain in verse 17, it's actually the word toil. So when you see toil in verse 17, that word can actually be translated as pain. And so you take that word that describes Adam's work, it's the very same word used for the woman's pain in verse 16. In other words, both Adam and Eve would experience this perpetual pain in the centers of their life, of their existence. Such is the consequence of sin. But God's not finished. There's still one more judgment he will pronounce. Notice this, men will experience physical death and decay. And that men is, is, is directly attributed to Adam, but it's all humanity in general. God said that the result of eating the forbidden fruit would be death, and now God keeps his word. God tells Adam in verse 19, look at it. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Physical death now becomes a reality for Adam and Eve and all humanity. Our bodies will decay and return to the dust. Every funeral, every graveyard reminds us of this truth that is rooted right here in Genesis 3. Because of sin, we all live with this prospect of our own death. 
By the way, do you know how long Adam lived? Adam actually lived to be 930 years old. But in the end, he still what? Died. And so will you and myself. Now, let's just stop for a moment. Let's kind of step back from this. Let's, let's jump out of those pages of the scriptures and let's take a, a bird's eye view of it. And step back from God's judgment on Adam and Eve and here's what I want us to see. And here's what you will see if you'll look from a big perspective here. What we see over all this is the seriousness of sin. In fact, what we see, and if you want to follow along in your notes, is that everything is tainted by sin. Everything. Notice this in your notes here. From childbirth to marriage to work to death, all of life is affected by the painful consequences of sin. Now, why, why did God pronounce judgment on these particular areas of life? Listen, God is not random. God is intentional in everything he does. God did not choose these areas of life out of, out of a bucket. He's not drawing straws here. It's not a deck of cards. He's not playing jack, blackjack and 21 and all that, all right? He's intentional. But why did he pronounce judgment on these particular areas of life, from childbirth to marriage to work to death? What's interesting here is that these areas of judgment in Genesis chapter 3 are a mere image, get this, of all the blessings that we saw in Genesis chapter 2. It's as if the story of paradise is now being played backwards in Genesis 3. God takes Adam and Eve back now through all the good things he gave them in the garden and now pronounces a painful consequence into each of these blessings that he gave them. But here's the grace in it all. And there is tremendous grace in this. Please don't miss the grace. God doesn't remove the blessings. There will still be what? Childbirth. There will still be marriage. There will still be work. And there will still be life itself. These are blessings from God that he gave us originally in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. But yes, in each of these there is pain now because of the consequences of our sin. Each blessing is now tainted, if you will, by these consequences. Childbirth is now painful labor. Marriage will include this painful conflict. Work becomes painful toil. And the gift of life is still given, but it now becomes oh so temporary. And it is filled with disease, and, and we age in this process, and it's not fun. So what, what then is God saying in all this? God is basically telling us this one big idea. Hey, he's saying, listen. Adam and Eve, and now us, understand something here. Sin always has consequences. Sin always has consequences. Listen, the blessings of God are now laced with the judgment of God. Childbirth, marriage, and work now involves pain. But this pain, oh, get this, don't miss this. This pain is a strange gift from God, though. You're like, what? 
pain is a gift from God. Yes, this pain is a gift from God. It's a grace of God because now Adam and Eve feel pain in every area of their life and it drives them, get this, back to God. Even though God drove them out of the garden, in doing so, it drives them back to him. It's beautiful. So God uses the pain even in our lives today to teach us that we're not to find our happiness in this sin-filled world, but in whom? In God. God made you for something far bigger and better, and that is God himself. The antidote to the pain that you experience in this world, it's not a human relationship, it's not sex, it's not a better marriage, it's not that job you want, it's not more money, it's not kids, it's not fancier fig leaves to cover your blemishes. Listen, it is God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. That is the antidote. So know that these judgments for our sin are still God's graces. Marriage, children, and work will never, and were never meant to satisfy and give us all that we are looking for in life. This is a grace because these judgments are meant to do one thing, and that is to drive us back to God and his goodness that we saw in creation in the Garden of Eden. And that goodness is now seen first and foremost in the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and his resurrection. And what awaits us on the other side in the new creation and new heavens and earth. This brings us to God's second response to the seriousness of sin. First of all, we, saw the, we see the seriousness of sin in the judgments that God pronounces. But number two, we see the seriousness of sin in the salvation God provides. If we learn nothing else from Genesis chapter 3, let us be clear on this point. Rebellion against God demands God's judgment, his just wrath against sin. When Adam and Eve rebelled, they became, in fact, God's enemies. And so we all are, too, according to Romans 5. In fact, Paul says that we are by nature, the moment we are born, get this, Paul's description of us, we are by nature children of God's wrath, according to Ephesians 2, verse 3. And Jesus himself says God's wrath remains on us unless something changes in our heart. In other words, we're born again. God's holiness demands that God judges sin. The wages of sin is what? Death. That has never been canceled. That has never been changed in any way. This is the seriousness of sin. But God's grace triumphs in that he doesn't leave us to suffer the ultimate consequences of our sin. Yes, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So God's salvation provided. Notice this. First of all, salvation is through faith in God's promise of a Savior. Now what Adam did next is, is rather astonishing in light of God's judgment of death in verse 19. Let me show you this. It says in verse 20, And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. Now, Eve, that name actually means life or life giver. And so Adam calls his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all the living. 
That's true. That's, we're a descendant of Eve. And even more astonishing, Adam calls her Eve before she's had any children. You say, what's the big deal about that? Here's the big deal. This is Adam's response of faith to God's promise to send a Savior through the seed of the woman back in verse 15 in the curse pronounced to the, the serpent. Adam just heard God's judgment of death due to sin. But Adam also believed that through Eve's seed, a Savior will come who will crush Satan and conquer death. And so this is somewhat, you could say, Adam's overwhelming shout of hope in the midst of judgment. Yes, he knew death was coming. He was not going to live forever. But he also knew that God promised a Savior who would deliver them from eternal death. It's beautiful. It is oh so beautiful. Notice number two. Second, salvation is through God's provision of a substitute. Now what God did next is an act of amazing grace. Look what God did in verse 21. It says, also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now there is so much in that one verse. We'll see if we get through it. Now why did God clothe Adam and Eve? Hadn't they already clothed themselves with those fig leaves? Yes, but those wouldn't last. Our attempts at self-righteousness never do, by the way. In fact, our puny attempts to cover our sin, to cover our shame, which is what they were trying to do, are always doomed to failure. And so God, here, get this, God does for Adam and Eve what they could not do for themselves. They can't deal with their sin. They can't deal with their shame all on their own. But God can and God does by using tunics of skin to clothe them. Now, let's take a time out here and ask a question. Why do we wear clothing today? As far as I know, everyone walked in today with clothes on. I don't think anybody's here buck naked. Why? Why, why did you walk into church today with clothes on? Why do we wear clothing today? Is it just a cultural thing? Listen, the styles of clothing may be cultural, but I suggest to you that modesty is rooted in the very activity of God here in Genesis chapter 3. What did Adam and Eve feel after they sinned? Shame. And so God provided a remedy for their shame. What was the remedy? Clothing. And so clothing, get this, is a gift from God. Why? Because God doesn't want us to live in shame. His actions now are the very basis for modesty. And you say, what's the application? The application is don't take off what God has put on. Glorify God not your body by the way you dress. Get this. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed before the fall. After the fall, they were what? They are now clothed. They are wearing clothes, which means the only time, the only place we now are to be naked and unashamed is in what? relationship the marriage 
relationship. By clothing Adam and Eve, God did two things. He met their immediate need of covering their shame, but he also illustrated their ultimate need of covering their sin. In order to clothe Adam and Eve with these tunics of skins, animals had to die. Blood had to be shed. And so this is the very first act of atonement in the Bible. It took a costly sacrifice of an animal to adequately cover Adam and Eve in their sin for the presence of God. Marcus Dodds, who was a 19th century Scottish preacher and scholar, he wrote, and I quote, It is also to be remarked that the clothing which God provided was in itself different from what man had thought of. Adam took leaves from an inanimate, unfeeling tree. God deprived an animal of life that the shame of his creature might be relieved. This was the last thing Adam would have thought of doing. To us, life is cheap and death is oh so familiar. But Adam recognized death as the punishment of sin. Death was to the early man a sign of God's righteous anger. And he had to learn that sin could be covered not by a bunch of leaves snatched from a bush as he passed by, but only by pain and blood. In other words, Adam and Eve learned something that day in all this judgment, and yes, grace. They learn that without the shedding of blood, there is no adequate covering for our sin. And for 1,400 years, what you find in the Old Testament is that animals were sacrificed day after day, week after week, year after year, in Israel to cover their sins under the sacrificial system. Of course, the blood of animals cannot take away our sins permanently, can it? A much greater sacrifice is required. And in the words of John the Baptist, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what we needed. That's what all this is pointing to. And so God's actions here are a foreshadowing of his ultimate provision for sin in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ when he died on the cross for our sins so that we could get this, be clothed, be covered by his righteousness. It's the gospel. It's God's plan of redemption for your life. And it's rooted right here in this chapter. Why? Because in number three, salvation is from eternal death. Sin's ultimate curse. Yes, in his grace, God clothed Adam and Eve to cover their shame. But folks, understand, please understand, sin still must be judged. Notice what God does here in verses 22 and 24. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, what we see here is Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. In fact, God drives them out. And the reason given, though, is filled with grace. The serpent has said to Eve, when you know good and evil, you will become like God. That was partially true. Adam and Eve did become, quote, like God, but it was not glorious as they had hoped. 
but disgraceful. They had sought moral autonomy. They wanted the power to decide what was right and wrong apart from God and his word. And all humanity has done this ever since, but it's an illusion. As Henry Blocher writes, the crazy little God with his absurd pretensions is not God and never shall be. All he can do is die, and that is exactly what Adam and Eve did. And us too. Adam and Eve's bodies, yes, they were alive, but they were now spiritually dead. In fact, Paul says, we are all what? We are born. We are now dead spiritually in the trespasses and sins. That is our spiritual state unless God intervenes with the gospel. And so now God must banish them from the garden. But even this banishment from the garden, get this folks, is an act of grace. See it here. Look at it. The implication of God's unfinished sentence in verse 22 is that if Adam and Eve had stayed in the garden and if they had eaten from that tree of life, they would have lived forever in what state? In their sinful state. They would have lived forever in their sin, separated from God. And what do you call a place where you live forever, always separated from God? Hell. So for Adam and Eve... To live forever in the garden would have been like hell itself. As another commentator states, the expulsion from paradise was a punishment inflicted for man's good, intended while exposing him to temporal death to preserve him from eternal death. And so, yes, the exile from the Garden of Eden, it was terrible. Paradise is now lost, but it was also for Adam and Eve's own good as well as for ours. For Adam and Eve and us, there's no going back to the Garden of Eden. But we can be saved from eternal death through Jesus Christ. In fact, the very tree of life, which is the last phrase in this chapter here of judgment, it never, you never see it again in the Word of God until you get to the end of Revelation. And it will be, we will have access to it once again. But that access to it only comes through Jesus Christ. To set us free from sin's ultimate curse, Jesus came and he proclaimed in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And so here in this chapter, in Genesis 3, we see something powerfully. We see that God's wrath towards sin, it is not mitigated by grace. It is not mitigated by his love. Rebellion against God demands God's judgment. But God's grace also, though, provides salvation from sin's ultimate curse. And so God the Father has chosen to pour out his judgment for people's sin, our sin, on his son when he was on the cross. Jesus took the full brunt of God's wrath when he died. And Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. For God, he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so God is a God of wrath and judgment, folks. But God is also a God of grace and mercy. You know what? And they all meet at the cross. This is how God can judge sin and at the same time save us 
from the curse of sin. It's beautiful. We see the seriousness of sin, but in the seriousness of sin, we see the wrath of God and the grace of God all come together. Now, let me wrap it up, because I know I've gone long. Notice this in your notes. Because of the fall, we are all under the curse of sin. Because of grace, God provides the covering we need to save us from sin's ultimate curse. And the question is, what covering are you standing under? Are you standing before God, a holy God, a righteous God, in the fig leaves of your own good works? Or are you standing in the righteousness of Jesus Christ by faith? Let the good news of the gospel ring loud and clear today. Through faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved from the curse of sin. Let all the sinners come. Let all the failures come. Let all who have blown it big time with stupid, foolish decisions in life come and be forgiven for their sins. Jesus has shed his blood on the cross. Jesus has paid the price. Jesus in the sacrifice has already been made. And God's wrath has been satisfied. That is the good news of the gospel. And so don't wait. Come to Jesus and be reconciled to God today and receive the gift of life, eternal life with him. Have you done that? What covering are you standing under before God? It's a matter of life and death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would let the truth of your word grip our hearts even now. We ask that you would apply its truth to our lives, that we would see the seriousness of our own sins, but that we would also see your grace in Jesus Christ. Oh, that we would trust in Christ alone to save us from our sins and to be reconciled with you as our Father. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The praise team's just saying just one course to give opportunity for you to respond. Perhaps you are still trying to stand in the covering of your own good works, your fig leaves. Man, throw those off and come to the cross, come to Jesus. Maybe you're already a believer here, but you know sin is in your heart, it's in your life, and you need the forgiveness that only Jesus can offer. Come to the cross. Let him forgive you while they sing.